Invoking Charles uh, is uh, the appeal to authority fallacy, uh, Michael. So, Wait, okay. uh, you know. Charles aside, Charles is on vacation. He's not here. Forget Charles. I don't, I don't know that I could ever forget Charles. Charles. is not going to like that at all. <laughs> I'm leaving it <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of America's Best Named Legal Podcast, Mike Dicta. Uh, we have uh, bludgeoned uh, Charles uh, Starr to death, uh, and I have taken over. Uh, my name's Tarek. Uh, I am the hell dude. Uh, and with us, we have an all-star panel of high-priced legal talent. Uh, joining us, uh, I believe, on his third appearance uh, and co-producer uh, of this uh, august institution is Michael. Fourth appearance, but I know you don't really count the Scalia pods, so I can't. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Fourth. Sorry. Fourth appearance. Not Say hello, Michael. Uh, hey, everybody. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, third appearance, am I correct, uh, for Robin? Hello, everybody. Joining us for his uh, second appearance uh, is Adam. Hey, folks. And in his uh, Mike Dicta debut, the debutante, uh, Ames, uh, say hello. Hey, great to be here. Okay, so uh, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about, as usual. Uh, We're going to start off with one of the greats of the American legal profession. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, about Executive Vice President of the Trump Organization and Special Counsel to uh, President Donald J. Trump, uh, Michael Cohen, who finds himself uh, in a little bit of a pickle. You might remember Michael Cohen from uh, 2015 uh, when he burst onto the public stage uh, by denying that uh, marital rape uh, was a thing. Was that him? Uh, in defense of his what? client. Uh, yes. In a, yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, in, yes. Uh, in an interview with the Daily Beast, uh, denying the claims that uh, he had uh, that his client had potentially raped uh, his ex-wife. Right. Uh, those claims that were made, I believe, in, in her uh, uh, autobiography or something. Uh, right. told, uh, told the Daily Beast that uh, the case law is very clear. Uh, you cannot rape uh, your wife. The case law is very clear, but it's not clear on that. <laughs> not a single state in the union uh, <laughs> allows marital rape and has not since at least uh, 1993. Oh, uh, I just want to also <laughs> note before we get into this uh, that in the course of that uh, interview uh, with the Daily Beast, he also made the comment to the reporter that, quote, I will make sure that you and I meet one day when we're in the courthouse. <laughs> and I will take you for every penny you still don't have. Yes. And I will come after your Daily Beast uh, and everyone, everybody else that you possibly know. So I'm warning you, tread very fucking lightly. Because what I'm about to do to you is to going to be fucking disgusting. You understand me? Uh, well... This guy's like a Spider-Man villain. <laughs> You'd think he couldn't top that. Uh, but uh, it seems, uh, seems he has, uh, doing some very normal, very normal lawyer things like uh, making or facilitating uh, a payment 
of $130,000 of his own funds to uh, his clients, <laughs> right. porn star mistress. <laughs> right. Who Does anybody want to set this one up for us? Yes, yes, yeah, sure. This is good. I'll, I'll take that. So, um, yeah, so there have been a couple stories that have broken recently in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the New Yorker in particular um, about various illicit affairs uh, President Trump had uh, prior to um, his tenure as president um, with Stormy Daniels, the porn star, <laughs> and also uh, Karen McDougal, a former Playboy playmate. Um, and uh, it turns out that uh, Michael Cohen has helped facilitate uh, essentially purchasing these women's silence in the months leading up to the 2016 election um, in, in different ways. Uh, Karen McDougal's uh, story was purchased by uh, the parent company for the National Enquirer and Us Weekly, um, American Media Inc., um, whose owner is a personal friend of Donald Trump. Um, and then Stormy Daniels signed an NDA uh, that was apparently negotiated by Cohen um, and paid through a, a, a limited liability corporation that he had set up in October 2016, rather hastily, it seems, in order to facilitate this anonymous payment. Um you know, in the wake of her talking to Slate and Good Morning America, amongst others, about, uh, you know, airing some of the details of their story. So that's sort like, of the factual background. Like a day before it was supposed to actually happen, right? The interview was really... Yeah, well, she had been, she had been I think, in probably, I, I mean, the details are, are unclear because she hasn't really spoken yet, although apparently she's going to... Uh, but I assume she was in negotiations for the for the purchase of this. Like she wanted to make money, and she wanted Good Morning America or Slate or someone, you know. And I'm sure she was trying to have them bid against each other, and then instead took a hundred thirty thousand dollar payout. Um, now uh, this is an issue for Michael Cohen. Um, it's an issue for uh, I think Pecker, <laughs> which is the real name. <laughs> I believe it's David oh Pecker. Um, somebody might fact check me on that, but he's the head of AMI, um, who uh, what, what this they actually call, checks out. Yeah, yeah, they call it catch and kill, which is when you purchase the rights to a story only to bury it, not to tell it. So for purchasing Karen McDougal's story and then you know killing it rather than airing it, um, it's possibly a problem for Donald Trump and. I'm going to say something that I haven't seen said anywhere else, but I think is true, which is it might even be a problem for the lawyer for Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Whoa. Uh, Davidson, who happens to be the lawyer for both of them. Um, and they all may have committed various felonies. Um, Did this come out in conjunction with an FEC complaint? Well, yes. So, well, it was first the Wall Street Journal reported on the payment to Stormy Daniels through an LLC. Uh, and it wasn't clear who had paid for it. It still isn't um, who ultimately paid Stormy Daniels $130,000 for uh, a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and then in the wake of that report, uh, this advocacy group called Common Cause 
essentially sent a complaint to the Federal Election Commission saying, hey, this is almost certainly a felony um, for as an illegal campaign contribution, undisclosed campaign contribution and expenditure, uh, you know, and they sent it to, to, what's his name, Rosenstein, the DOJ as well, um, you know, being like somebody should investigate this. And they're absolutely right. Um, somebody should be looking into this because almost certainly true that somebody committed multiple felonies, probably multiple people committed multiple felonies. Whether you could pr- prove that in a court of law is a separate question, but it almost certainly happened. Um, now, for sure. Now, with with regard to who should investigate it, um, I think that you know the FEC is notoriously inefficient, notoriously unable to uh, decide in one instance on whether to get bagels or donuts for an event. Um, <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> if if not the FEC, then uh, you know would would the responsibility for sort of bringing justice to Michael Cohen fall to the New York State Bar Association. <laughs> right. Well, he certainly may have violated some legal ethics, but, uh, you know, considering the, that this implicates the president, it's uh, certainly within the DOJ's power here to appoint a special counsel to either assign this to Mueller, since he's already engaged in an ongoing investigation related to, amongst other things, money laundering and potential blackmail you know, that a foreign power might have over the president. Well, you know, blackmail that the head of AMI or Stormy Daniels might have over the president is at least, you know, sort of tangentially related to that. Um, Or you could uh, assign a separate special prosecutor uh, to this investigation. Um, But the case, I think, is much clearer and much stronger that there's a crime committed here than there is in the whole Russia affair. As interesting as that sprawling, <laughs> complex investigation is, like, it's pretty, it's it's going to be a hard argument that this wasn't a campaign contribution. Um, if it the money ultimately came from anybody other than Trump, uh, then it's in excess of the limits, which is only like $2,700, $130,000, you know, it's orders of magnitude. And if it was corporate, it wasn't disclosed. Yeah, and it wasn't disclosed. Would that cash, like, become it? Like, if it came from like Ivanka and Jared, would it still be considered a contribution? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. The the only person who could who could pay that and not have it be well, it's a campaign. The only person it could come from and not have it be an illegal contribution would be Donald Trump himself, because the candidate doesn't have any. Limits. I think he spent sixty-six million dollars of his own money, or something like that. Like there's well, that, but that—that's what's so interesting. I mean, I mean, isn't isn't the? I mean, Michael Cohen just sort of blurted this out, didn't he? At some point, like I, <laughs> that I, he, I <laughs> yeah, he actually, the this was my money, and I did it. <laughs> right. you, know me, uh, you know, <laughs> I researched the story for years, and he just tweets it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that what actually happened, though? Right, like. That, that money is Donald Trump's money. You know, the Cossacks work for the czar. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in, in theory, it's possible that it was somebody like Pecker. Uh, you know, this is, we saw this with uh, John Edwards, which is. Um, you, you got know, better intent evidence here, though. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Edwards was indicted for essentially the same thing, which is 
he had wealthy backers, not himself, pay his mistress money to keep quiet. Um, you know, and that ended up with a hung jury, uh, you know, and part of the problem there was that a lot of the payments came after he was a candidate, which creates sort of the presumption that it wasn't related to the election. It was related to not wanting his cancer-stricken wife to know that he got, you know, an aide pregnant or, or whatever. So wait, you know, that's com- so you're saying basically that if I'm going to do something like this and pay out a ton of hush money, I should do it like the day before I declare. <laughs> right, it's got to be after the election. Right, or you have to have like a wink, wink sort of agreement. Like you'll get a bunch of money on November seventh or whatever. Right, whatever is the day after election. Gotcha. Day. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but help me, help me out. Like so, so the theory is that this benefited the campaign because it kept quiet something that could harm, yeah, and, harm him. And this is, ergo, right. This is sort of a. This is. I wouldn't say black letter law, but it's pretty solid there. You know, the FEC has initiated opinions about this, that like paying money to, uh, to, to dampen bad PR or avoid bad PR is an election, uh, related expenditure. Okay. Does that apply to Donald Trump though? Like, is there any PR that's bad PR for Donald Trump? (laughs) (laughs) He's defamation. Right. It's like, like, that's part of why it's so weird that the lawyer, that Cohen was just, like, throwing himself in front of the bus because Trump is, like, well, scandal-proof. Well, I think, you know, Cohen is, I mean, we call him a lawyer. He's loosely a lawyer, <laughs> right? Like, let's be real. He's a fucking goon, uh, you know, and his job is to yell at people on the phone and tell them he's going to sue them if they run bad stories, he's not making appearances on Trump's behalf in the Southern district. Right. Like that's not, that's not his job. Um, uh, so what he's doing here is what he's paid to do, which is sort of like run interference between Trump and the general public. Uh, and, and that's sort of, but I do think that, <laughs> I, I do think that he's spoken to a lawyer. Uh, his, his statement was really <laughs> fucking weaselly worded. That like somebody who understands actually understands election law wrote it. Uh, and then all these stories are coming out and it feels like the stories feel like they're setting up a defense. You know, they're talking about how Cohen called, you know, some website in 2011 to try to kill the Stormy Daniels story. And like, hey, if he did it in 2011, then clearly it's not election related. Right. It's it's just about that. As he says in his statement, he's loyal to the Trump family and he'd do anything for them, including pay out of pocket to like protect his good name. That's insane That's, to uh, me. That, like, yeah, no, I mean, I think the, the more than anything, the creation of the LLC sort of puts the lie to all that. It's obvious bullshit. Like it's like three weeks before the election, you're hastily creating a shell corp to to pay this this person. There's no way. It, <laughs> and, and, and I'll tell you what, something we said on the first episode, I think is really relevant here. Um, and a key difference between this and the Edwards case, which is what we said about the J20 protesters is if you're going to protest, you know, it, it, do it in Brooklyn or D.C. where you're going to get a sympathetic jury. Well, like Edwards was like a state, you know, one statewide election in North Carolina and got a hung jury in North Carolina. But this would be in Manhattan. 
Manhattan where Trump only got <laughs> like 9% of the vote. <laughs> like yeah. a Manhattan jury, <laughs> I think, would be very predisposed to finding that uh, this was definitely campaign related. Uh, oh, I'm sure you could find a jury involved. of Michael Cohen's peers in Manhattan, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I uh, just, but, imagine having $130,000 just lying around that you could even make the claim. Just imagine going to law school thinking, I too want to clean up Donald Trump's messes. And <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is your career goal? This is what you signed up for? I mean, it's such a specious claim, too. It's like so obvious in dis- uh, discovery that you, that could be sort of, you know, your bank records are going to end up getting subpoenaed and you're going to have the feds going through all your shit. And whether or not that's true is going to come to light, you know, and he said that he wasn't reimbursed by the Trump org or the Trump campaign, but that doesn't rule out Trump. That doesn't rule out any of his family. That doesn't rule out any of his wealthy friends. Like, it's very clear that this could have been a payment from Trump or one of his, you know, inner circle. Um, And uh, and so I mentioned that (laughs) I mentioned that Stormy Daniels lawyer and Karen McDougal's lawyer. might be in trouble. And, and my opinion is that when you read this stuff, he, and Charles agrees with me from the chat. He's, he's not you here, but I'll speak can't in his bring presence. Charles into this. Yeah. <laughs> Charles is my back Nuh-uh. on this, which is that Davidson seems very much in on this. Like, uh, Cohen literally refers clients to him. And this seems to be a little thing they have where Davidson represents people who are, you know, going to get a payout to shut up and then he gets his cut of it uh and they have a whole little circle and if that's the case um not only is that like a major ethical violation yeah isn't it a conflict yeah it's absolutely absolutely. a conflict um but it's also part of the conspiracy to you know uh have campaign donations in excess of the limit and to you know hide them from the fec and all that stuff so I, i think he, how tight he seems with Cohen is sort of uh, sketchy, and he should, my personal opinion, is he should be in the orbit of this investigation. Who knows whether this investigation will ever happen? Um, you know, Trump personally seems to be picking the, the AUSA or the, the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, so... I think he's running out of time, actually, because if it's, I think it's an interim appointment, and I, I, yes. I see a future where the interim appointment lapses, and the court says, "Well, it's up to us to appoint someone," and he appoints Preet Bharara, and all this gets prosecuted. <laughs> it's going to be great. Right. right. Well, well, Gillibrand is, has vowed to like blue slip anybody that Trump has handpicked because of the obvious conflict, which you know, good for her. But uh, a blue slip is like for our, our listeners is like a Senate tactic where home state senators basically get a veto on things like U.S. attorney and judicial appointments. Uh, Essentially ended for judges lately. Yes. Yeah, judicial appointments, it's sort of uh, been killed. They're going to kill the blue slip and uh, appoint Michael Cohen. That's right. 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 (laughs) It's going to continue to fail upwards. (laughs) But regardless of any sort of like criminal or FEC violations or anything, Cohen could still theoretically be subject to just like normal ARDC sanctions, right? Right. Well, so, so the, uh, the, the Code of Professional Conduct basically prohibits uh, using your own funds uh, for, uh, for your client in any matter that sort of involves litigation or contemplates litigation. Um, 
the idea being you can't like pay your client to sue someone. Right. And, and uh, so but then, like a settlement would question, fall within that same like. Right. So there's there's definitely a question of to what extent this falls within the spirit of the law or even the letter of the law. And I think a lot of that depends on the nature of the NDA. Uh, you know, the NDA might explicitly contemplate litigation. That wouldn't be that crazy. Uh, I, I don't know. Tarek probably knows NDAs better than me, but outlining your responsibilities, should you be subpoenaed or deposed or whatever, seems like something that might be in there, in which case that's it. Like it contemplates litigation. Um, okay. Oh, well, but the rule, the okay. rule, the rule technically uh, was designed to prohibit uh, bidding wars uh, for clients. Right. So, right. you know, you slipped and fell and Hey, I'll give you a $500. You know, I'll give you a thousand dollars, et cetera. So it, this isn't that, but by the same token, it just seems it's definitely just way beyond. It's, it's very abnormal practice, <laughs> to say the least. Extremely normal. It's <laughs> such an understatement. It's hard, it's hard to explain. But, I mean, nothing he, you know, it's, it's, it's abnormal practice, but that's not abnormal because Cohen's not a lawyer. It's also abnormal practice to call up a reporter and threaten to sue him into oblivion, right? Like, when I was a defense yeah. lawyer, we didn't do that shit. I mean- Post-Gawker media downfall landscape, though. Like, you, yeah, like that's I the know. thing that people have done now. <laughs> there's, there's a whole segment of the business world that revolves around using the threat of law to get what you couldn't actually get by law. Like, you, not many people can afford a lawyer, so it's pretty easy for Michael Cohen to say, you know, guy on the street, I'll sue you into oblivion. And he might not have a case, but I can't afford, you know, Right. Tarek to represent me and uh, improve that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, and, the, and the, the litigation threat is, especially when there's asymmetric resources, is very powerful. Uh, and, and Cohen is the type of thug that you use to, to take advantage of that. We should send him a Mike Dicta CND. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, like I happen to know that like Trump uses like Morgan Lewis, you know, when he's actually sued. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That's the, the, you know, he uses real lawyers for real lawsuits and he uses Michael Cohen for bullshit. Like, that's, I thought it was Jones Day. Well, Michael Cohen's directly, directly employed by the Trump organization. Right. I mean, he doesn't have a, any other role other than to be an employee executive VP of the, the Trump organization. Right. So speaking as outside counsel or inside counsel, Council, rather, I can I can say uh, a lot of my job is uh, calling people and yelling. At them. So, <laughs> <laughs> just sp- sticking up for Michael Cohen. Nice to know the, <laughs> the hell dude is committed <laughs> to ruining lives across the board, <laughs> not just the listeners. Yes, <laughs> not just my Twitter followers. You yeah. sheltered me from harm, kept me warm.
from a story of uh, incompetence to a story about uh, competence, in this case, uh, to stand trial uh, as an adult or not. Um, <laughs> as a smooth. We're going to talk about a 2014 case uh, involving uh, two 12-year-old girls uh, who, in order to curry favor with an internet meme, uh, the Slender Man uh, stabbed uh, a friend of theirs uh, nearly to death. I, I believe she did leave, uh, live. Yes, 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 she did. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that case uh, and uh, some of the uh, legal uh, issues that it that it raises. Um, does somebody want to tee up the factual background and, and yeah, start us off? So, so this is actually a case that I have been following since. Basically, you know, either at the very beginning or just before my law school career. And what happened was these two, like, you know, junior high school age, 12 year old girls discovered the Slender Man meme, like, while surfing YouTube or something like that. And something and awful. Was it Creepypasta? It was, so it, was that the so name it of the started, site? So Slender Man, for those who don't, know this sort of thing. Slender Man is a meme that was basically, it was intended to be a sort of like internet Blair Witch. And so a bunch of people decided to get together and create this boogeyman from sort of stock fairy tale tropes and infuse it with, you know, this kind of mythos of like, it's almost like the ring where once you know about Slender Man, Slender Man knows about you and you're a target and all of this. But it was. And didn't they Photoshop him into like a lot yeah, of Yeah, and they'd edit like him that. into and videos, kind of and there were like entire web series about like people's investigations into the Slender Man. It was. Sounds a lot like the Hell Dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was one of those things where like, so I was, I was 16 when this was happening. And so it was fun because everybody was kind of in on the secret of like, we're building an urban legend from the ground up based on our knowledge of literary history. But like, you know, it was a very nerdy, fun thing to do. Fast forward. Sort of organic evolution. Yeah, exactly. Like it was, it was, it it was like a role play of a horror, like a, like a, like an alternative reality game of a horror story. Mm -hmm. So for people who knew what was going on and were kind of in on the meta of it, it was very fun. Fast forward five years and you get two 12 year old girls who stumble upon these horror, you know, these Slenderman horror stories, and they become completely obsessed with the Slenderman, and they decide that they are going to become proxies for him, which means that they are going to be like servants carrying out his will. And in order to do that, they have to stab their like other best friend. And they have to, like, kill her in order to prove their worth to the Slender Man so they can go live they, in his they mansion. They, they both sort of have blossoming mental health issues. Yeah. Right? Like early onset schizophrenia and things like that. Yeah, and, like, um, it, it's, you know, the, the actual diagnosis is less relevant. Like, one of the girls, for sure, um, Morgan Geyser, still believes. Morgan, who was the girl that actually committed the stabbing, she's been diagnosed. Um, her accomplice, Anissa Weir, has also been diagnosed with some sort of ish. And so, like, in many ways, the, the mental illness component is the least interesting part of this story because right. 
Um, one of the things that came up is when they were charged was there is a Wisconsin statute that essentially requires that juveniles, you know, anybody over the age of 10 who has committed or planned to commit a first degree felony is, is going to be tried as an adult. And it creates this sort of rebuttable presumption that the kid's attorney can come in and say, well, you know, they need to be tried as a juvenile because of X, Y, and Z. And so it's, it's a three factor test. And one of the factors is like, you know, that the kid's going to be receiving adequate treatment. One of them is that the kid, um, like the serious of the seriousness of their offense isn't going to be diminished in any capacity. Um, right, right. And the third one off the top of my head, but it basically has to do with like the the, term. the terms. terms, yeah. So like all of these things come into play, and all of a sudden you've got these like twelve year old girls who very clearly had done a horrible thing they had like totally planned out that wasn't even contested but right, they stabbed a girl 19 right times. after luring left her left into the, the woods over like th- several hours of trying yeah, to do exactly. this right? and they yeah, planned, exactly. and planned over the course of several months and yeah. and like they would plan it on the bus and talk about it in code and but on the other hand they didn't like they didn't understand that Slenderman was a fiction. They they were exhibiting like even before you got into any consideration of mental illness, like a lack of emotional maturity and understanding to really even know what was right, going on. Right. After they after they stabbed the girl, they set off to find Slenderman's mansion, five hundred miles away. Right on foot, they were like going to yeah. walk five hundred miles to find the hidden mansion in the woods or whatever, which is just like. Just that in and of itself is sort of bonkers, you know? But exactly. And, and bonkers is a, that's a legal, legal term. <laughs> <for the way. laughs> so, so like the first, that was the first real issue that came up in this trial is like, what do we do with this sort of, like, this is clearly horrifying. This was clearly something they planned out and intended to do. But on the other hand, like, they obviously don't understand what they've done and the consequences right. of those actions. So how do you kind of balance the, like, danger to society with, like, the interest of the minors in question? Well, I, th- I thought it was really interesting. The court made a decision. Like you said, it's a rebuttable presumption. So the default is that they're going to be tried as an adult. And then they contested that. And the court made a decision that they would be tried as an adult. And it went up on appeal. And I was reading the appeal. And, you know, the appeals court sort of recognizes that the third prong of this test, and in one sense, it doesn't really matter because you have to meet all three prongs. And they had already failed the first two prongs. This but is the, the third, deterrence one? Yeah, the deterrence mm-hmm. one. The third prong is deterrence. And there, there are four basic theories of punishment in the U.S. system, which is deterrence, deterring others from committing crime, um, you know, incapacitation, incapacitating people who are, who are dangerous, rehabilitation, and uh, retribution, which is people did what something really wrong about. or they deserve bad things to happen to them, and it, it helps. In the adult and juvenile systems, just treat those incredibly differently. Like in the United States, we sort of used to believe in the idea that we could, that any offender should be rehabilitated, given a second chance at life. That sort of ended sort of mid-drug war, right. uh, so mid-1970s or so. So the adult system, you start off with a presumption of 
punishment, retribution, get them off the streets and let them feel how much society despises them. Right. In the juvenile system, you start from a premise of treatment. So the, 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 how you sort these two people is hugely consequential. Um, and right. what's, what's so interesting, as someone who does like criminal justice reform, I found this really interesting. And these statutes that are drawn to treat kids differently, they acknowledge that you know, if you're under 25, your brain isn't fully developed. Uh, you, you can't as much appreciate the consequence of your, consequences of your actions. But they sort of abandon that principle if the crime is bad enough, which is, it, it's just bad logic. Like, if you really believe in this. Um, yeah. And, and, so, and they're really sloppy with it. So, so they, you know, the, the appeals court basically recognized they're like, yeah, the trial court sort of paid lip service to deterrence, but really they decided to try him as an adult because of incapacitation. They were concerned that, you know, these girls would turn 18 and would still be dangerous, would be, but would be cut loose if they were tried as juveniles. And it's like, it's quite literally not the purpose of the statute, right? Like the purpose of the statute is, are we going to deter other people from doing something similar? Not, are we going to incapacitate this individual? But these statutes sort of give judges so much discretion, and there's a whole wave of them in the 90s. Most states have some sort of safety valve for the juvenile system. Like if... If you're a juvenile and you'd qualify for juvenile court, but what you did was bad enough, and it varies like how bad it has to be, right. um, then we're just going to shut you in the adult system because we're well, scared. Well, it's weird. I think that the Wisconsin statute was so young because I know it's not you know like it's not uncommon <laughs> for them to you know for right. there to be exceptions for kids who are you know fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Like they're they're old enough to at least appreciate the sorts of things that like if you shoot someone in the face, that person will die. Like they, like they understand concepts like this, but in Wisconsin, it starts at like, it's like, Oh, you're over 10. Like sucks to suck. Yeah. Yeah. It had been, it had been 12 for decades. And then it was actually lowered to 10 in the mid nineties, um, over the, you know, nationwide panic over super predators. Right. Right. And in particular, in Wisconsin, there was an 11 year old who was involved in a gang shooting. And, uh, you know, my understanding mm. is that, that the law was drafted in particular response to gotcha. that. Gotcha. Okay, that, that makes some more sense than what I was thinking. I mean, it's absolute, like, it's a travesty and bullshit. Right. Like, yeah, of course. No, I just, like, there. there's, so. like, something that prompted it other than, like, yeah. the fear of, like, <laughs> yeah, rogue wild. teenagers like, roaming the, the cul-de-sac. ten-year-olds being tried as adults Mid '90s is probably no coincidence too, because it, it's not just Wisconsin, but states across the country were uh, doubling down on mass incarceration, deciding to build more and more prisons. It's the same time of, of the 1994 Crime Bill, right. which uh, Hillary Clinton managed to backtrack from in the waning days of the primaries. Uh, but it, it's it's around all that same it's around all that same discussion about we've got to get um, reflexively tougher on crime, even if we know it won't work. Um, right. Even if it's children, right? Even if it's children, right. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that leads to like the other kind of really weird and interesting thing about this case was, you know, they they copped a plea, like they they pled guilty but innocent by like means of of mental defect. And right. for those who, you know, for our lay listeners, like that basically means that they didn't have the capacity to understand the difference between right and wrong in the circumstances yeah. under which they committed the crime. 
So it doesn't have... And it bears... It bears out. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it doesn't have anything to do with, like, actual, like, diagnosis of any sort. Like, it can be... The insanity defense can mean any number of things up to and including clinical right. insanity. Insanity. Right. Well, just to stop one second. So so they pled, they pled yeah. guilty. Uh, and what was their sentence? I mean... So Morgan... Um, who was the one who actually committed yeah, stabbing, stabber. committed. She was sentenced to, I believe, 40 years. Yeah, in a mental, in, in a mental institution. Anissa, who, you know, it was never really clear how much of a role Anissa played in the in the actual planning and the decision making, but she was the one who, according to the record, you know, said do it now, do it now, and kind of egged Morgan on to the stabbing. And it's also not, at least from what I have been able to tell, it's not super clear and, and held her what down. her diagnosis yeah. is. Right. right. She, she is she is a diagnosis. But yeah, she knocked her down and held yeah. her in place when they were playing. I and when she tried to this. escape, kept holding her down and said, no, 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 we need you to stay here so that the Slender Man will accept us. Yeah, and then it was like when it came down to it. <laughs> They're both pretty bad. When it came down to it under her version of the story, it's that, you know, she walked away. And when she got like a certain distance away, she told her friend to just go ahead, you know, like go nigh was, I think, the language from the actual interviewer. And so ballistic. So I think that's part of why she got less of a sentence was because it wasn't really clear what her role in all of this was. But she got sentenced to 25 years. Also in a mess. Oh, yes. You know, part of that is every six months they can petition to to be released. Mm-hmm. Although I think Anissa agreed not to do that for at least three years. I don't know. Oh, I missed that. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know if Morgan did or not, but but basically Anissa agreed to like three years in a mental institution and then thereafter, you know, another twenty-two years with the six month review. Yes. From from everything I've read too, Morgan's still extremely unwell. Like she still thinks that the Slender Man is real, that unless something is done, then he's going to prey on her family, that basically it's either her or yeah. someone else. So, like, she's not yeah, getting out anytime soon. I think that was for a while, but I read that at her most recent sentencing, she was actually somewhat, uh, I think oh, she's I on think she... medication. Uh, there was, like, some dispute about this. So her her psychologist or psychiatrist was saying that she was sort of lucid. She apologized oh. to the family, um, and she told oh, the victim that. that she was... Hope she was doing well, but then the state psychologist said that she reported hearing voices as recently as three weeks ago. You know, so there's like there's some question as to what extent you know she's on medication. Like I think that's without dispute, and there's like some level of lucidity that's returned, but the extent of that is sort of yeah question, which I think is pretty much how these things go, right? Like. The six month review in a lot of cases tends to be just sort of pro forma. Like, you know, it's very possible that neither of these girls leave even after their sentence is up, that they end up civilly committed beyond that if the state right. decides they're dangerous. Right. You know, that's very, it's very possible. It becomes a battle of the experts. Like, you, if, uh, if you're able to afford a psychiatrist who can, you know, analyze you independently, then they'll proffer their diagnosis. The state will proffer their diagnosis and it's resolved by a court on a rolling basis. Okay. When I was a prosecutor, one of my colleagues did this, um, and it, it seemed to be a very, very taxing system for all involved. But uh, in a lot of these cases, that uh, you're hard pressed to think of something better, like a, someone who who believes that a, a mythological deity has to be appeased by murder is probably not someone that should be on the street, right? Um, right. But 
Yes. The, yes. Cir- <laughs> the circumstances of their detention is, is a different matter entirely. Right. Well, I mean, and that's sort of the other part of it, which is like the judge, you know, I was saying that the judge sort of impermissibly considered incapacitation when it's yeah, returns. But there's a certain. That was fascinating. Also, like, it's certain, like, to a certain extent, it's like, also, yeah, though, like, this person is dangerous, right? If they <laughs> right. think that, like, I kind of get it. Like, if you have that discretion, I, I would certainly be tempted if I were the judge to be like, well, you know, I I think it's our role as a state to make sure this person is incapacitated to as long as she's dangerous, and who knows how long that's going to be. Well, and the and the worst the worst nightmare for 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 a judge in a high profile case like this is to err on the side of doing the the, the human thing, yeah, right. uh, and put this person back on the street, and then they you know slaughter another person uh, in the name of the slender man, right? right? I mean, like just especially the practical realities of this are uh, the easiest thing to do is just to throw this person under the especially under the if it's a state where you elect your judges. Yes, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing too, though, right? Because like having been a teenage girl, like you. <laughs> there's so much social stigma attached to literally everything you do. It's like, what's your best case scenario here? You come out, you have to change schools. You have to basically move to like somewhere where there's no internet and like hope nobody figures yeah. it out. Like you're not really, I don't know that you can come back from doing something like this. And I think that's yeah. such an inadequacy. That was literally the, like, the state psychologist's argument was that the girl was not realistic about her ability to sort of integrate into the real world, you know, that she said, you know, that she could live at home and her mom could look out for trouble signs, but that she seemed almost sort of, you know, like Pollyanna-ish about like what it would mean to reintegrate into society. Like you're going to be, you're going to be stigmatized as a fucking crazy person who tried to kill her best friend. Like you have to be ready for that. That's going to be hard. I don't know if they have this in Wisconsin, but they have it in New York and in a couple states. And I don't also don't think it would really work in this case for the reasons you're saying, you're saying, uh, but in New York, in some other states, if you're convicted as someone under for something you've done under the age of like 17 or so, it's pretty easy in New York to get your records sealed. Uh, it's even easier now. Um, it used to be you had to cut a deal with the, with the prosecutor, uh, and in most cases they'd be willing to listen to it. But I think um, Governor Cuomo just signed something that made it a, l- a little easier, I think, after 10 years. Um, but so that there are some protections for people who commit a crime in the juvenile system so they can live it down. Like we know how, how hard it is to find a job after you've been incarcerated. Yes. Um, there are ways where as a juvenile you can live it down by you know, very aggressive record sealing where like even us in the government office couldn't see some of those youthful offender convictions. Oh, wow. But yeah, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that. Does this case frustrate that though? Just yeah. by notoriety, yes. Like, like you'd have to change your name and like dye your hair. And yeah, stuff. and even right. then they were right. tried as adults, so it wouldn't matter. Correct, yeah, it, yeah. It's more interesting as a principle than an application <laughs> to this case. Right. right. So where does it stand now? I mean, they're just detained? Yeah, they're there, they're done. They're pled and sentenced. Uh, Anissa was sentenced in October, and, you know, she got the 25 years, up for reevaluation every six months, and then Morgan... Morgan's took a little longer because I think there were some more serious competency issues. So she was sentenced like 
last week, like February 1st-ish, was I think when it first came up in the news headlines. Um, mm-hmm. You know, give or take a couple days, I could be wrong on that. They, they were litigating yeah, juvenile like, status for a while too. It doesn't seem like they're appealing it. Like they're just, they're just like, all right, this is what's happening. Right. They're they're sort of accepting institutionalization. Uh, you know, with the chance of getting some sort of release. Early. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, forty years, this girl might be in her fifties before she's a free person again. Which is like, on the one hand, she stabs someone nine, 19 times, and that's you know, scary, and she's got obvious mental issues, and that's scary. But on the other hand, she was 12 and untreated, right? And that's, like, right. that's like so different from, like, a 25-year-old who's in treatment and the idea that she could hit 25 and be in treatment and still be facing down another 27 years is, uh, I don't know, it, to me, strikes me yeah. as an injustice. Um, you know, you... So this is something, this, this is closer to what I work on on a daily basis. Like you'll see judges on the, on the federal bench um, sentence people to you know, long federal mandatory minimums uh, and step off the bench and wipe away a tear. Like a lot of judges will say, you know, the sentences I'm required to impose, and in this case, I think they had some discretion. Um, but, and it's a little different in, a, in the case of you know, mental commitment where you get the six-month reeval versus right, prison where you right. don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of cases where we don't really calibrate uh, the sentence someone can actually expect to you know, what's good for them and what's good for society. Right. And, and so, I mean, you know, I, I should temper what I'm saying, which is to the extent those reevaluations every six months are legit. Right. 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 And not bullshit. Right. But it's like, again, like Tarek said, everybody's incentives on the state side is to keep them committed keep them as long as possible. Yep. Right. So nothing can go wrong. Right. And, and we de- and we depend on the advocacy system as a check for that. Uh, and luckily, it's really easy to hire a good public defender. <laughs> no, it's, it's really hard. Like, you, it's really hard to get a, a decent lawyer if you're anything short of like upper middle class. Even right. let, alone, let alone a decent expert witness who's going to testify on your behalf that you're no longer right. a danger to yourself and others. Right? Yeah. Uh, expert witnesses will charge yeah. you like hundreds of dollars an hour, even in a drunk driving case, right. Uh, right. Uh, even uh, especially in a case like this. It's going up yeah. against a state expert who sees you every day, right? Exactly. Has, yeah. has like books of notes on you. And sees the judge every day and the judge yeah. doesn't trust them. Right. Home cooking. I, I think that right. that had possibly played into the family's sort of decision to, to, to plea out, right? Like they didn't have a particularly good answer as far as what would they do going forward um, because this is the family that – you know, wasn't able to afford uh, what Ames described as, you know, the battle of the experts. Um, they, you know, didn't have her in treatment for, um, you know, anything that was going on beforehand. Um, and I think that there's actually a family history of mental illness. Um, so there are often sort of issues yeah. yes. with, you know, being able to to provide, um, you know, care if, if you yourself are, are, you know, suffering from, you know, probably undertreated schizophrenia. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, like in the documentary, there was, there was a documentary about this that I watched um, recently and they actually did an interview with her dad where he was talking about like his issues with his own mental issues and um, kind of putting it into context with his daughter. And I think that really highlighted, you know, kind of the inadequacies across the board. Um, You know, even, 
you know, like this was a guy who had never been convicted of any sort of criminal anything. He just, he has audio visual hallucinations. And how do you deal with that if you're not actually convicted of something where your treatment is like court mandated? So there's there was just a lot going on with the case. Of the many things that bother me, and like I, I think you could write a really good law school exam problem about this case. Like there's just so much right. going on. Yeah. Uh, you right. got you, you got your insanity defense. You got your juvenile the adult system. Right. Um, but uh, one thing that I think is probably inescapable is people are going to blame the internet. People are going to blame internet culture um, when it's really just people who are mentally ill will latch on to fictions, and it doesn't matter if it's written film internet, et cetera. Like you could have someone in the 1930s reading Lord of the Rings and thinking the Nazgul are real and you could have almost the same sort of thing play out. Absolutely. I still blame surfing the web though. Right? <laughs> in, in this one case, yeah. Although, how, like how do you even find Slenderman if you don't know what to look for? Like maybe I'm old. I had never heard of it until like, <laughs> until like Ames October. Ames himself as like a terrible <laughs> normie, which is <laughs> probably a good thing. <laughs> no, it's 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 you're a normie because uh, I'm I'm old and I know all about Slender. Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm I'm like right in the line between Gen X and a millennial, and I know about Slenderman pretty well. Huh. I just hadn't thought about I'm it. Not that online. Long. I was like, it was like a thing that mm. I did in high school as like a creative writing exercise, and then it was like I, Robin created Slender. No, Man, no, uh-uh, no. Like, she sort no. of copped to that. <laughs> she was there at the beginning. <laughs> there at the beginning. <laughs> And is racked with guilt, and it turns out she's been following this case for years. This podcast is her confession. <laughs> this is now Mike Dick the Cannon. <laughs> exactly, Adam. Exactly. She needs to unburden himself. She needs to unburden herself. It's all coming out. I am not responsible for Slender Man. Thank you. And <laughs> You've not been proven to be responsible. <laughs> now that sounds like a Michael Cohen letter. Now, if you wait, if you wait long enough, you know maybe Michael Cohen will uh, confess to you. <laughs> having good vengeance. Johnson. Yes. yes. <laughs> Definitely poop on the floor. Let's talk about that piece of garbage. <laughs> Hopefully he's going to get sued into bankruptcy. <laughs> See, I, I love this because it's like, it's how defamation law is supposed to work. Yes. Someone, exactly. someone, with, someone with a podium took it out on someone who doesn't have one, and now they're going to have to pay. That's what defamation is supposed to be for. Not frivolous Michael Cohen letters, but I digress. Y'all talk about it. Yes. I'll tee it up, uh, you know, from from the consequences uh, tragic uh, of being extremely online <laughs> uh, to the consequences awesome uh, of of being extremely online. Uh, our friend, uh, friend of the pod, uh, Chuck Johnson and his uh, Got News uh, organization. Just the dumbest name uh, for a news site, by the way. It's so fucking terrible. So I think you're exactly right. Just like him, like <laughs> sliding around a brick wall, like, hey, well, I get some news. <laughs> to be fair, Chuck Johnson looks like a man who drinks a lot of milk. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> instead of a instead of a milk mustache, he just got that big old red beard. Uh, <laughs> We're all gonna get sued by him tomorrow. So Chuck Johnson and and Got News uh, have a shtick uh, that goes back uh, pre his uh, perma ban uh, from Twitter, which is to take any news story uh, that is uh, in the cycle and try to a insert himself uh, and b. Uh, make it about his political enemies. So this harkens back to the Charlottesville uh, tragedy that we've spoken about on the podcast before, uh, namely uh, the individual who uh, plowed into a crowd of protesters, uh, killing one. Uh, and as as is uh, Chuck Johnson's uh, uh, M.O., uh, he immediately came out the gate, uh, did some sort of search on the vehicle, and uh, found... Uh, an owner uh, of the vehicle uh, who he alleged was some kind of druggy uh, lefty Antifa. Uh, he put that on the web. And he claimed he committed the murder, too. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was the thing he did. Uh, and uh, so this story made the rounds. Uh, it made the rounds on Twitter with all the usual suspects. Uh, uh, Ch- uh, Chuck Johnson's uh uh, friends such as uh, Gavin McGinnis, Paul Nealon, uh, the racist candidate uh, for Congress. Oh, yeah, that one. The one racist candidate. Oh, is he permabanned? Oh, make that connection. Yeah. Yeah. The, the one single racist. racist. Jim, Jim Hoft, the gateway pundit. <laughs> the gateway pundit, gateway correct. Pundit. The, the White House credentials, great gateway pundit. Uh, John Cardillo, Ian Miles Chong. Uh, this story uh, was picked up by tons of people, and even after it became clear that uh, they had once again uh, jumped the gun based on some uh, 8chan and 4chan uh, shoddy internet detective work, uh, were once again pointing the finger at uh, some poor guy who was at a wedding uh, and had nothing to do with any of it. Uh, now, uh, for once... Somebody has uh, picked up the uh, picked up the, the baton and actually sued one of these guys uh, for defamation. <laughs> sued this, all this, of them. Has anybody read the complaint in, in more detail? You want to uh, give us a little well, bit so of a background? This is like a whole thing, right? Like they um, they were like receiving death threats, and like it got to the point where yeah. the police, like their local police, told them that they needed to just like go into hiding for a little bit. This was like, yeah, like this was crazy all based on like an old vin search for a license plate i think it's right so what what had happened was that um i think the car had been in so there are two plaintiffs there's a father jerome and the son uh joel and so the father had been in possession of the car uh years ago and had had sold it um, so yeah, I think an old license plate VIN search or something returned that name. Um, they were of course in Michigan at the time. Um, but they were started, they started to receive anonymous threats. They went into hiding. Um, and the, um, the complaint is, is mostly a very detailed listing of exactly what each of the defendants did to spread or propagate the, uh, fake news as it were it's got each each tweet each quote tweet um people posting yeah videos on 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 their facebook uh yes it's you know ohio like the plates and the driver's name is uh you know joel joel vangaloo 
uh, his Facebook is loaded with anti-Trump pro-globalist rhetoric. And it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of reposts. Right. Like it, it reads like, like these people are bots almost. Um, but you know, it's all kind of bog standard alt-right peacock like captions. Yeah. Like chain memes or whatever. Yeah. What I do like is that that in this case they sort of, as you say, the patient zero uh, is Got News itself, right? right. And uh, Got News article led with a picture of Joel Vanglehue uh, pulled from his Instagram account, headlined "Breaking: uh, Char- Charlottesville Car Terrorist is Anti-Trump Open Borders Druggy." Uh, subheading: <laughs> stating, uh, Evidence indicates a left winger mowed down Antifa counter protesters in Charlottesville. Not a right winger. Not a white nationalist. Got news can exclusively reveal. And I gather this was all lifted from uh, Paul and some of these other uh, uh, image board sites on, on, on 8chan or 4chan. Because, as I said, uh, Ian Chong and some other folks were also alluding uh, to this uh, detective work. But uh, as always, Chuck was first out the gate. Uh, and then uh, apparently Gateway Pundit picked it up. <laughs> it, it, interestingly enough, though, if you get down the list of people that are sued here, at some point uh, the story breaks the the wall, uh, and it breaks into lefty Facebook. Yes, uh, and there's a number of these defendants are actually uh, people saying he he attacked my comrades, saying that Chuck Johnson is a comrade. He attacked our he attacked our comrades. No, that. That, uh, yeah, it's clear from the language of the allegations that some of the people who are defendants are leftists. Oh, but they're, but they're picking up on the Joel, what's his face thing, not the, um. Right. Yeah, the name of the guy who killed our comrades is Joel Vangaloo. It's a lot of vowels or a lot of uh, consonants in that whole thing. It's a lot. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of everything. But, but yes, it it spread to, to various corners. And And the complaint is pretty an interesting, it is interesting to see that sort of, uh, they did their homework traced out like they right. absolutely did their homework. That's right. They, and it's, it's, it's a really, I thought it was an impressive complaint. Um, they did a, a really nice job of sort of tracing the way this disseminated uh, into all sorts of corners of the internet and then laying out the claims, which are very sort of, I mean, it, this feels like the layup question on a, on a law school exam for defamation or even as they claim yeah. intentional infliction of emotional distress. I feel like yeah. all was a losing claim. I mean, like yeah. he's, not <laughs> even, he's not even yeah. a public yeah. figure. He's just some like 20 year old yeah, kid exactly. from Michigan. Cool. Like this is just some right. dude. Have you all done a defamation explainer on the pod before? No. And I think that's, we, we should get into it right. because I, you know, I don't even think, uh, I don't even think actual malice. We, we have to get to that. Right? No. no, you don't. Yeah. Somebody want to lay out kind of what this is about. I, I can do that. So uh, since, since a, a breakthrough case, I think it was New York Times v. Sullivan, was it? Yep. There's been a distinction in defamation law between uh, the ty- based on the type of person that's victimized. If you're an average person on the street, you have to prove basically that it was a false statement, that it was widely disseminated, um, and that it damaged you. If you're a public figure, you have to prove all those things and that it was done with knowledge of the falsity of the, of the statements. Uh, yeah, or and, recklessness and, and actual malice. So it's yeah. the reason it's the reason that um, 
Uh, and, and like the people v. Larry Flint case, that Larry Flint, then publisher of Penthouse, could make ridiculous allegations about Jerry Falwell because uh, everyone knew it was satirical, number one, and number two, it was about a public figure, so it's not going to meet the defamation standard anyways. Um, the difference here is that uh, the victim in this case was not a public figure, so you don't have to prove actual malice. Uh, and, and basically what defamation laws become is it allows punching up really easily. Like you can make fun of people with more of a platform than you, but punching down on people without a platform is just really, it's, it's the quickest way to get in trouble. Um, right. Well, the other, the other thing you have here is, as you said, one of the elements, generally speaking, is damages, right? Yes. You have to show uh, that it was a statement of fact, not just an opinion. I think this guy's an asshole. Uh, you know, or satirical, you know, James Woods is a cokehead. Hmm. Uh, but in this case, you know, they're alleging the guy committed a murder. Right. Right. Um, which is what we call defamation per se, meaning, you know, you don't even have to prove that it's damaging. It's presumed uh, if somebody says you killed a bunch of people or killed somebody and, and, and wounded a bunch of others, that, that it's presumed that that kind of statement is damaging. Right. The, the right. only question is how damaging it was. Right. Uh, interesting historical note, too. It used to be defamation per se to claim that someone was gay uh, because it was presumed that that was such a damaging thing to say about someone that it, right. it had to be defamatory. Huh. Wow. Um, yeah. I, yes. Interesting. Uh, so other, other examples are, are, are things that tend to, to show that, or, or, or state that you're bad at your profession, uh, that you have a loathsome uh, disease <laughs> <laughs> was another one, uh, but yeah, committing a crime is is really the the the, the big one, right? And and, and this seems Chuck Johnson seems to have realized that he had gotten himself into hot water pretty early off um, because they retracted it real quick, which is kind of unusual for for forgotnews.com. Um, and then when uh, CNN reached out to Chuck Johnson, uh, he said he emailed CNN saying that he, quote, merely reported on the existence of the evidence and suggested he would be happy to discuss it with the family lawyer. Um, didn't he go then, into hiding, too? Like, didn't he send a bunch of emails that were like, I'm in a bunker well, somewhere? So what happened next was <laughs> Chuck Johnson tried to retroactively <laughs> declare his email to CNN to be off the record and then say that if the reporter published the email, he would get the reporter fired from CNN and warn the reporter not to make the mistake of making him an enemy. <laughs> this guy's it's like Michael Cohen without the money or the power. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Or the sophistication. Or the yes, <laughs> fine, fine. And Michael Cohen is not sophisticated, but this is this is fucking like third grade. You know, yeah. In at and recess, I think that shit. that gets into a lot of what makes this sort of so satisfying to see Chuck Johnson be on the uh, receiving <laughs> end of you know a very meritorious claim of defamation is that he right. himself leverages Absolutely. like fake claims that things are defamatory all the time. Yes, we've done one on we've the podcast. We've done one on the podcast. Um, yeah. We, there, at least 20 different times he has threatened to uh, sue people for defamation as compiled by uh, Mike Dicta uh, member, <laughs> Other Adam. Panelist Adam Emeritus. On his, on his yeah, personal blog. blog. There was at one point, I believe, a, a website that would count down. Uh, how many time, How long it's been since Chuck Johnson has threatened to sue someone? <laughs> That's amazing. 
he did he did sue Gawker. That's the the one suit that he did go through with before the uh, Twitter yeah. suit was was uh, based on the. I'm gonna be very, very careful here. The story of alleged floor shitting. He sued for sixty six million dollars. Yes. <laughs> I always forget about that, and every time someone brings me up, it just fills me with joy. I don't, I don't even, I don't know anything about this. You gotta, you gotta give me some. No, he sued, he sued. (laughs) Missouri. I'm I'm not gonna remember the jurisdiction, but I think it's Missouri. Had a lawyer there already. St. Louis, right? The Cardinals, and he. He, the lawyer was located there. Neither Gawker nor Chuck was located there. <laughs> the, 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 the best part, the, the convenience of the forum was both that his law, he found a lawyer there who would bring it and they don't have a slap statue. Oh, of course. I think was the And, and the allegation was that Chuck Johnson shits on the floor at parties. Yes. Was, this is like a thing well, just, that Gawker allegedly just the one he time. allegedly shit on the floor at a party. Well, the story was very careful to do. <laughs> well, they also, no, in fairness to Chuck, they also they also ran a story that he may or may not have had sex with a, uh, an animal. <laughs> I did not know about that one. You know, that, that that was also, they had run a series of stories about things that they were wondering were true that had been said about Chuck Johnson, and one of them involved. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm Gawker was just a walking First Amendment hypo. Uh, Chuck, if you are listening to this, That's- we're just a simple county fair and we're judgment proof. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we believe you're innocent, too. He, he, hey, we're, we're discussing allegations. We're not stipulating the, the truth. I have no doubt you did not shit on a floor and you did not fuck an animal. Those are things I'm sure you did not do. I've seen no evidence to suggest he did I've either. I've seen no evidence things. to suggest that he didn't. No, it's really... <laughs> no, it could go either way. Really. I'm agnostic on the question of Chuck Johnson's bestiality. One thing I'm not agnostic on, though, is the merits, as as Adam said, of this complaint. <laughs> uh, I think that these are, this is a well pleaded complaint. Uh, I think it is a long time coming uh, for these folks. Uh, and uh, go, uh, Jerome and Joel Vanglehue. Congratulations on your ownership of gotnews.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, I just hope they get punitive damages, man, and, and bankrupt him, right? Like that's that they asked they, for him. I yeah, him. all that, all that sixty three dollars a month and in, in Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> I have two boring Civ Pro questions for you. Sure. They, they three. Um, they put they picked a jurisdiction, venue, and choice of law in the in Michigan, the home of the um, defamed person. What's the jurisdiction law around defamation? Can you can you bring it's, it's someone to court? It's, it's where it's published uh, oh. or where the harm occurred. So okay. in, in this case, when you're publishing on the internet, and this is gets back to Chuck's uh, Missouri complaint, the the claims against him were published everywhere, uh, and so he tried to make an allegation that he was harmed in multiple places, including Missouri. So in this case, the the defendant or the plaintiff rather. Lives in lives in Michigan. Uh, the publication reached Michigan, and the harm occurred in Michigan. And, and I think that covers pretty much all three, right? That covers jurisdiction. It does. It does. Yeah. Choice of law is is notoriously boring and thorny for for listeners who don't know the law. Like there, there's basically there's a question in any civil case as to whose law applies. Like uh, if you get in a car crash in in Vermont and you're a New York resident, right. is the right. the basic question. 
the question here is like, does Michigan's presumably more generous law on defamation control the case? Right. Um, and there are, there are literally cases of people driving themselves insane studying choice of law. So I won't go into it any further. <laughs> I literally in law school like got in a screening match with my Sith professor about this. It's mad. <laughs> like literally it's yelling across the classroom. It was not my finer moment. Generally, it shouldn't matter too much, but it does matter in these defamation cases. Uh, generally, when we're talking about mer- meritless defamation cl- cases being brought by people who are mad online, like Chuck <laughs> in Missouri, uh, it matters because certain states uh, punish strategic lawsuits against, pu- against public participation slap suits, right. and certain jurisdictions don't. But in this case, as the plaintiff, you know they're not so worried about that. I guess, it, particularly given that. Uh, this is basically textbook mm-hmm. defamation. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, I just want to note, um, you know, Ames mentioned correctly that <laughs> intentional infliction of emotional distress, <laughs> distress is almost always a loser. But I feel like this is a case where yeah, you yeah, I do too. actually <laughs> have a win. Yeah. Because some of yep. these comments, I'm looking at this one, uh, Christopher Jones, who who posts something like, Hey, here's his info anyway, in case we need to quote unquote convey our dislike for him and his kind in the future. There there are a few that say that it's, it's now it's time to, and I I think they mean strike, but it's a stroke back. back. (laughs) Stroke back. It's time to stroke back. Stroke back. (laughs) (laughs) Stroke back. They call that the stranger when you, when you stroke back. Yeah, no, there are a few that like seem to implicitly advocate or explicitly for that matter, advocate violence or some sort of retribution, which I think sort of uh, actually creates pretty good grounds for an yep. IIED claim. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I don't know. It's a great complaint. Uh, and, yeah. and it seems like they're going to win a lot of money, and I hope they do. Did you see much damages allegations in it? In it? Like maybe I speed read it too quickly. They, I didn't. They mentioned that the father had clients who or customers who became mm. afraid for associating with them, and it hurt their business. Um, but I think most of their damages are related to uh, you know emotional distress, anxiety, which is contemplated in defamation. Oh, and again, because because they're accused of a crime, the, the, the failure to prove, I mean, they could win a dollar here right. uh, and still win, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they don't have to plead damages. Right. The fact that they were almost certainly uh, damaged emotionally and in their daily lives uh, just is icing on the cake. Right. Amazing. Well, I think we have covered all the topics. I do believe so. Yeah. Have we not? Okay, so that wraps up uh, this episode of Mike Dicta. I would like to thank our panelists, uh, Michael, Robin, Ames, Adam, and uh, me, the Hell Dude. We will uh, talk to you next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Although I'm filled with love, I'm afraid they'll